Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. This period is an ideological clash. Um, It's not just sort of time where everyone already believes in emerging egalitarianism. Instead, it's it's actually a time where the United States departs from British precedent and forms these new conceptions of government. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Novia Liu discussing the political philosophy of John Adams. And she's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series, with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Novia Liu, and she'll be discussing the political philosophy that was pretty unpopular in its day of the founding father, John Adams. Novia Liu comes to us with an interesting analysis of one of the most, I think, misunderstood publications of its time, John Adams' A Defense of the Constitutions of Government of the United States. In this book, Adams will describe um, his view of a natural form of government, uh, one that's very much the antithesis of the Republican vision of the government that's being pushed by those across the political aisle. It's a wonderful article. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Novia Liu. Novia Liu, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Novia, tell us about your background. So I'm currently a junior at Stanford University, and I'm majoring in history. Um, My primary concentration is on the American founding era, so this is such a wonderful uh, place to be able to talk about this article. And then um, within that, more specifically, I focus on um, the American Revolution's political and intellectual developments. What first drew your interest into this topic? So it's a bit of a funny story. Um, so I initially wrote this essay when I was a freshman. Um, it was my first quarter here and also the first history class that I'd taken um, at a college campus. And I knew that I was broadly interested in looking into the creation of the Constitution. Um, and we had a final assignment to write approximately 10 pages um, on a primary source. So I started looking through our school database to see what sources had popped up in the United States. Um, in 1787, and I came upon this three-volume work by John Adams, um, but it was one that I'd never encountered before, called A Defense of the Constitutions of Government of the United States. It's a very long title. 18th century writers seem to like them very much, um, and it's written between 1787 and 1788, while Adams was serving as um, the U.S. ambassador to Great Britain, living in London. And it's a response particularly to a letter from Enrobert Jacques Trigo, um, a former French finance minister, 
And within that letter, there's a small subsection which criticizes the United States' state constitutions um, for seemingly adopting Great Britain's tripartite or three-part system, uh, meaning that they have governors, councils, and assemblies, and Turgot criticizes it because they haven't, quote, collected authority into one center. Um, So initially, when I found the source, I thought I was going to write um, an article about how defense was really, really important and how it might have contributed to popular acceptance of the Constitution, given its timing and its author. Um, but as I started reading, analyzing, and discussing this piece, I was quickly confronted with just how different Adams's ideas were, um, both from how I conceived of the American Revolution and how his contemporaries understood it. So I was drawn to it for um, a reason that ended up being really different from the essay that came out of it. Novia, what informed Adam's attachment to the natural order of government? Yeah, definitely. Um, So the big argument in defense, and what struck me so much about it is um, Adams is arguing that the states need these tripartite three-part governments because that's built into nature itself. So he says in every society, the people are divided into the one, the few, and the many. And in order to be successful, governments actually need to reflect that in their constitutional structure. Um, So his attachment to that is coming from um, his previous sort of intellectual world that he's coming from. Um, This idea of a three-part government reflecting natural orders is called mixed constitutionalism, and it's grounded... Um, in the Greeks and Romans, actually. So Adams is drawing from people like Polybius, Cicero, and Tacitus. Um, But he's also drawing from his contemporary British government because this idea also forms the ideological foundation um, for the British constitution. So there, um, there was, of course, the monarch, which represented the societal estate of the one, then the nobles representing the societal estate of the few, and then um, the commoners representing the many. And that was reflected in the British constitution by having um, the monarch serve in the government, but also then a house of lords and a house of commons. And the idea was that by reflecting um, the societal orders in the structure of government itself, They were held in balance, and this created a stable constitution that would be successful. Um, Applying this to the United States, Adams, of course, knew that we don't have a legal hierarchy. There's no king, there's no lords, but nevertheless, he felt that those natural inequalities were reflected in American society and that they sort of emerged um, from it regardless of whether there was law to enforce it. So with that, he thought that the state constitutions, which had this tripartite structure, were like their British predecessors, um, reflecting those natural orders and holding them in balance in the same way. How did this conflict with more Republican values of the day? I'm so glad that you asked this question, because I think the divergence between um, Adams and this Republican side is really where the revolutionary aspect of the American Revolution comes into full force. So to provide a little bit of context, we're looking at 1787. At this point, Americans have declared and won recognition of their independence, meaning that there is no more king, and also the American colonies never had a permanent body of nobles. So from that, there's this growing sentiment that in the United States, as opposed to having these three orders, there's only one order, that of the people. 
Um, and I find that that's strongly expressed in the Declaration of Independence when we say that all men are created equal. Um, it's also increasingly being expressed in various newspaper essays that come out of the period between 1776 and 1787 when the states are forming their first constitutions. There's people emphasizing the fact that there is no king, no lords, no three estates. In fact, just the one estate of the people and the government should reflect that as opposed to trying to balance these entities that have no force here. Novia, talk about defense. Definitely. So it's this three-volume treatise that's written in response to Trudeau's letter. Um, and what I argue is that it's kind of a manifestation of Adams's fear that Trudeau's letter, um, which again is written by this really respectful philosopher who actually believes strongly in the American Revolution, um, that that's going to ignite this existing um, conspiracy to overturn the states' tripartite constitutions and replace them with a unicameral legislature. So how the work progresses is the bulk of it's actually dedicated to listing off various foreign governments, comparing them to those of the states, and then concluding that the latter are superior, crucially because of this um, mixed constitutionalism approach. So Adam says that in the United States, these state constitutions are successful because they have a tripartite structure that is tied to separate states. Um, I think a particularly illuminating chapter is um, letter 25. It's letters because it's formatted in this Episcopalian mode, um, which is entitled Dr. Franklin, actually. But most of it is dedicated to a direct response to Trudeau, saying that essentially he's made this argument that there is equality among people, and that means that no balance is needed. But in reality, there are these natural inequalities, um, not just those that arise from sort of ability, um, but actually ones in terms of wealth, in terms of opportunities from birth, in terms of an impulse to revere others that creates these distinctions that then need to be expressed in the government. And Adams's argument is that the states have done so successfully. Novia, what was Adams's great fear? So his overarching fear, as you've alluded to, is that there is this underlying conspiracy within the United States trying to dismantle these tripartite structures, um, dispense with having a governor, an upper house, an assembly, and instead institute a unicameral government. And to a certain extent, this fear has real references. So Pennsylvania in 1776, when it establishes its state constitution, concentrates power in a single assembly. It doesn't have um, structure we're familiar with, with the Senate and the House of Representatives. It just has that assembly. Um, and even though it has an executive council with the president, that group lacks a veto in the way that colonial governors had. So in Adams' mind, that's sort of the looming specter. And there's people in the United States in his mind that are still strongly attached to the ideal. Um, he's afraid that they're going to rally behind Turgot's argument and overturn constitutions uh, like the one that he drafted for Massachusetts, which has a governor with a limited veto and has that bicameral structure. Um, and in terms of fearing Turgot's influence, I think it comes up especially in his chapter entitled Locke, Milton, and Hume, because he sort of inserts it in and talks about how great philosophers have had these wonderful ideas, but also these absurd ideas of government. And he concludes that Americans are too enlightened to be bubbled out of their liberties. Um, but I think including that chapter suggests that he's afraid of the very thing he's claiming isn't a threat. Um, he sees this letter from Turgot, which is written to Richard Price, by the way. It's a private letter that's published after Turgot's death. 
um, with this small subsection criticizing the state constitutions for maintaining this tripartite structure. And he thinks that this is just going to reignite this lingering flame that is um, sitting in the United States. And there he's going to be that prominent philosopher that bubbles Americans out of their liberties that are preserved in his mind through this balanced structure. Novia, how do you think his mindset was affected by being overseas during this time? Definitely. So um, at the time, Adams is serving as the U.S. ambassador in London. So he's not in the United States as all of this is sort of bubbling to the surface. Um, Part of that means that he's situated among a lot of people who are critiquing the United States, looking at this fledgling nation, trying to find its sea legs um, and poking at it, essentially. And he sees Turgot um, as one of those people and is afraid that Americans will be convinced. Um, The big thing, though, is that he's literally distanced from what's going on in the United States, and this prevents him from being able to gauge a lot of things, like how much of an effect this letter has had on his countrymen. So one of um, the arguments that I make in the article is that this distance leads him to overestimate the threat that this letter poses. I think it's telling that in response to a 17-page letter, Adams writes three volumes, which cover over a thousand pages. Um, And he does this incredibly quickly in haste. Uh, He even tells family members that he's, he's abandoning sort of the intricacies of language. He's not trying to make this a beautiful piece because it's so, so urgent that he publishes this. Um, And when you look at what's actually going on on the ground in the United States, this feels very disproportionate. Um, Reverend James Madison, which very confusingly is the cousin of the more well-known founding father, James Madison, which is also the recipient of the letter. So it's Reverend James Madison to James Madison, uh, comments on how this letter by Turgot has very limited influence. The idea that he's espousing has very few advocates in the United States. Um, and he tells Adams um, essentially just look at the state governments as proof. Um, the vast majority of these have this tripartite structure. It's only Pennsylvania in their 1776 constitution and Georgia in their 1777 constitution that established unicameral assemblies. And after the fact, including Massachusetts's constitution of 1780, um, they do maintain the structure that um, Adams is so attached to, though just crucially without that societal link. Um, the other piece is just attachment to this tripartite structure is entrenched before the revolution. Um, Colonial governments have the governor, the upper house, and the lower house, so it's not something that is being newly imposed, that is still unstable, that Adams really has to worry about suddenly crumbling to the floor. Um, Finally, the aspect that makes it sort of an overestimation of impact is it's unclear if Turgot himself even is aiming at a unicameral assembly. So the exact um, wording that he uses is collecting authority into one center, that of the nation. Um, But that isn't explicitly calling for a unicameral assembly. Adams thinks that it is because he has this existing anxiety over this lingering conspiracy. Um, But his critics suggest that Turgot might have meant one tripartite government that required the people's general appropriation to pass a law. Um, Of those two interpretations, I don't quite have enough evidence to be able to say which one was correct in Turgot's mind, but I think it's telling that others are interpreting this letter not as Adams is, but um, in line with their existing state constitutions. Who agreed with Adams at this time? So this is a bit of a tough question. 
Um, in my paper, I cite John Jay, a fellow founding father, as an example based on a letter that he pens to Adams, where he praises defense for educating people on the importance of tripartite government, um, which means that he shares in Adams' views that there's a threat posed by supporters of unicameralism. But that's quite broadly accepted. Um, and I'd have to read more from Jay in particular to claim whether or not he subscribed to the theory underlying Adams's defense, um, which is this idea that not only is there a tripartite structure, but that's tied to these orders in society. Um, one person that I can more confidently say that agreed with Adams, although I'm not certain he, he's very well known in his own right is Cotton Tufts, which is one of Adams's cousin. Um, I also cite his letter in the article because he speaks about the miseries of unbalanced democracy um, and emphasizes the necessity of reflecting three orders in government, which is very much in line with Adams's theory. Novia, how was defense received when it was published? So there's sort of an initial reception and then the reception once Adams's ideas set in. Um, initially, it's actually complimented because it's coming from this respected figure at a time where Americans are grappling with the efficiency of their governments. This is a period known as the critical period where the Articles of Confederation just aren't functioning properly to be able to uh, maintain domestic tranquility and also give the United States um, adequate respect abroad. And within defense, Adams includes a brief critique of the articles and its unicameral government. So that sits well with people. Um, as the ideas start to really be grasped by these emerging Republicans, though, they have a far less um, positive response. I think a really telling example is James Madison's letter to Thomas Jefferson, where he has a truly scathing line um, saying that men of learning find nothing new in defense, men of taste find things to criticize, and men without either not a few things which they will not understand, which is a very eloquent way of saying that Adams is expressing these sort of old world ideas of um, having a government structure tied to different societal orders, so nothing new there. Um, it's something that should be criticized because it's challenging this emerging Republican spirit, which says that there is only one order. And even if you don't fall into any of those two categories, then you just might not understand it because it is three volumes of these like sort of rambles written in haste. Um, and that's the piece where it really feels like Adams is being left behind in a sense. Um, a large portion of his countrymen have moved against this British idea of mixed constitutionalism that Adams is still clinging to. And once they realize that he is still clinging to that and not just advocating this structure, um, they, they, they criticize him for it. Novia, how does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? I think in that regard, there, there are two big points. The first is to understand that this period is an ideological clash. Um, it's not just the sort of time where everyone already believes in emerging egalitarianism. Regard Instead, it's, it's actually a time where the United States departs from British precedent and forms these new conceptions of government. Um, so something that's familiar to us as a government with an executive, a senate, and a house isn't emerging on the scene fully formed, instead it has these ideological roots that feel entirely foreign. 
Um, and the reason that they feel entirely foreign is because of the American Revolution's great ideological feat of asserting that there won't be three estates, which ultimately leaves Adams to be left behind. Um, when I wrote this essay, I hadn't had the pleasure of reading Gordon Wood's Creation of the American Republic yet, but I think he expresses this point incredibly well in his section on Adams. Um, so I can only hope that the article bolsters that. Um, the other piece is, I think the article tells us just about the anxiety of the era and the fact that this is really a critical period for the nation. I think that it's no coincidence that defense is published the same year that the Constitution is written. And it's because both Adams and the Convention are responding to instability that follows the Revolutionary War. You have the failure of the Articles that isn't able to control the states internally or command its respect abroad. And amid this instability, people are worried that Americans may fall prey to disastrous reforms. It's just a matter of how they define them. So for Adams, this means losing the critical tie between government structure and the estates. For people like Madison who are criticizing Adams, it's fearing an abandonment of republicanism and, in fact, a reversion to what Adams is advocating. Um, so I think defense broadly and then hopefully this article specifically tells us about this anxiety. Um, the final point that I'll add that to sort of developed in the two years since I've written this piece is I think the reactions against defense also suggest something to us about the Constitution itself. Um, the fact that in the minds of men like James Madison, it wasn't an instrument for maintaining the old world system of class hierarchy, um, maintaining the old order that Adams was referring to. Instead, while maintaining the same tripartite structure, Americans had begun to sever the tie between that and its societal estates to assert that indeed there was what only one estate, the people. Um, and I think our Constitution aptly pronounces that when it says we the people. Novia Lu. Thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> the music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.